Larry Stam is a longtime friend of the church, many years now, right? Many years. That has to be maybe 15 years ago or so when we first met you. He is a, he is a Jewish believer in Messiah. And uh, he's, in fact, when we, when we first met Larry, he was a missionary with Jews for Jesus uh, in New York City, where he was what, about 11 years, six years, where time flies on, six years. He was six years with uh, uh, Jews for Jesus in New York, New York City, but, um, uh, but we, uh, we love him and we're, we're glad to have him. He, he's now, he's, he's uh, Larry Stam Ministries, he's on his own now. And uh, he's, he lives in Johnson City, Johnson, right, Johnson City? Johnson City, uh, Tennessee. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a tennis coach in Johnson City. Yeah, he was uh, East Tennessee State's uh, uh, university uh, tennis coach uh, for a time, right? And uh, he was, uh, you know, when, since this time when I've needed help in the pulpit here, well, you can maybe say I've needed help for the whole time I've been here, but... Uh, <laughs> Some have, but uh, I've I've I appreciated it before. But I've been um, it's just to re-emphasize the uh, the body of Christ. You know, the body of Christ that uh, you know we've had help from various quarters and and how you know people that even we don't know well or because we're related to each other uh, through our common relationship with Christ. How they come to the fore and. And uh, just an example with that, you know, not only has, not only does the gospel break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, he breaks down the barrier, perhaps even more powerful in our culture, between Ball and Gator. <laughs> he played he played tennis for the Gators. And there's power in the blood of Christ. He forgives us <laughs> for all our sins. So. I think Larry, I just wanted to introduce Larry to you, and uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, and and uh, and I think he wants to uh, begin his uh, message today to us with a couple of minute clip from Ten Commandments. We have that? Okay. So let it be written. So let it be done. conquered Moses. The foot of a slave is on the neck of Egypt. You were saved from the Nile to be a curse upon me. Your shadow fell between me and my father, between me and my fame, between me and my queen. Your shadow now fills all things with death. Go out from among us, you and your people. I set you free. It is not by your word nor by my hand that we are free, Pharaoh. The power of God has freed us. Enough of your words. Take your people, your cattle, your God, and your pestilence. Take what spoils from Egypt you will, but go. 
us out of bitter bondage. Tomorrow we go forth the free nation, where every man shall reap what he has sown, and bow no knee except in prayer. We will go with our young and with our own. A powerful scene from the 1956 classic, The Ten Commandments, uh, starring Yul Brenner as Pharaoh and one Charlton Heston as Moses. <clears throat> you know, in that scene, Pharaoh says to Moses, I set you free. And Moses declares uh, boldly and clearly, it was not by your word nor by my hand, but by the very power of God that we are free indeed. You know, the bondage-breaking God of the Exodus is the same bondage-breaking God that is setting people free this very day. And today's message is not really about the specifics of spiritual warfare per se, but I hope this message really is a resounding declaration of the God who sets men and women free through His promises, His power, and his provision. Today we're going to examine the Exodus story itself, which is chronicled for us in the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. And studying this remarkable historical event can have a profound impact on our faith journey. For in this section of scripture, much is revealed about God's plan, not only for the people of Israel, but for humanity this day. You know, in the midst of Israel's despair, hopelessness, and utter helplessness, God sends a deliverer named Moses to lead the people out of bondage and into freedom. And this vivid picture of deliverance painted for us in the Exodus account points us and points the way to a future deliverer who brings about a different kind of deliverance, as we'll soon find in our studies today. Now, no doubt over the course of human history, there have always been oppressors who have enslaved people, and there have always been instances of deliverance from slavery. But this story is so unique for so many different reasons, some of which I trust we'll see today. For God, the ultimate bondage breaker can break the very chains of bondage, no matter the circumstance or condition that you and I find ourselves in today. A brief introduction to the book of Exodus as we begin our study. It chronicles the central event of the Israelites' salvation from slavery in Egypt. After God saves Israel, he makes a covenant with them and makes them a nation. The book of Exodus is actually the foundational charter of Israel. It's where God gives Israel the law at Mount Sinai, establishes a covenant with them, and leads them in the wilderness for 40 years, preparing them to enter into the promised land of Canaan. One other important element I want us to note as we prepare to dig into the book of Exodus. It's filled with miracles, like the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, which we didn't get a chance to see on the film. You know, the Exodus is filled with miracles. And while some people think miracles are one of the greatest obstacles to believing the Bible they actually serve as one of the greatest verifications of its being the very word of God. And I like this comment from a well-known Bible teacher who aptly stated about the first miracle in the Bible, the miracle of creation, quote, 
Once a person accepts the first sentence in the Bible, no other miracle should trouble him. Now, the time of Moses and the Exodus is approximately 1500 B.C. As the book of Genesis ends, the sons of Israel are living in Egypt, and they're doing quite well. As Exodus begins, things are changing dramatically. You see, there's a 275-year span between the time the events of the book of Genesis ends and the events of the book of Exodus begins. And in that time frame, the sons of Israel took God's command to be fruitful and multiply quite seriously. (laughs) Some of you have studied this before, haven't you? At the end of the book of Genesis, remember Joseph and his family? They numbered about 75 people. 275 years later, there are an estimated 2 million people, Hebrews, living in Egypt when the time the Exodus begins. And this population explosion isn't the only dramatic change. Also during this time frame, the Israelites are now enslaved by the Egyptians. So I want us to take a whirlwind tour through the first 14 chapters of Exodus as we study what we can and glean what we can in our brief time together. And as you're turning there, just know the book of Exodus is in the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, better known as the Torah to religious Jews today. And Moses wrote the book of Exodus. A little bit about Moses as we dig in. He lived 120 years, the first 80 years of his life. Uh, are chronicled for us in the first two chapters of Exodus. And then we note at the beginning of his life the environment he's born into. So turn to Exodus chapter 1 as we begin our time in the Word. Exodus chapter 1, we're going to begin reading verses 8 through 10. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Beginning in verse 8, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh then issues a death warrant against every male baby in Exodus 1, verse 22. In chapter 2, Moses is then born. And after three months of hiding him, his mother puts him in a wicker basket and sets it in the reeds on the bank of the Nile River. Now Moses' life is preserved from none other by Pharaoh's daughter, who finds him in the reed and actually raises him in Pharaoh's court. We then read that Moses' mother nursed him. Now we don't know exactly how long that they had regular contact. And we're not sure exactly how Moses finds out But at some point, Moses finds out that he is an Israelite. And he not only understood the plight of his people, he also chose to identify with with them, as Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 tells us. The word says, By faith, when he was grown up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Moses is now a grown man when we get to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Now he's 40 years old when he takes matters into his own hands. He kills an Egyptian who happens to be harassing a couple of Hebrews. And then the next day he breaks up a fight between two Hebrews, two Israelites, when one of them says to Moses, Hey Moses, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Who made you a prince and a judge over us, he says. Then we see in verses 16 through 22, we see Moses, a man rejected by his own people, a man fearing that he would be killed by Pharaoh, now fleeing Egypt. And where does he go? He heads off to Midian in exile. He heads to Midian where he will remain in exile, working as a shepherd for 40 years. Moses is in exile. The Israelites are still in bondage, and there's no end in sight to their plight. And then God shows up. Then we see God moving. Look now at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Exodus chapter 2. Verse 23, we start. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, it's important to note here that According to Egyptian law, when a pharaoh died, the authorities dropped all pending cases, even in capital offenses. This meant Moses was free to return to Egypt. Then the scripture continues in Exodus 2. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Israel, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew, the scripture tells us. As Charles Spurgeon once noted, quote, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our heart upon the black horse of affliction. After many years of affliction, the mercy of God does indeed show up to touch the Israelites. In his mercy, the Lord God remembered. He remembered them. He remembered their plight. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you recall the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? This is key to understanding God's plan for mankind. You see, in that covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation and that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. God then births the nation of Israel through whom Messiah Jesus would be born. So we see here in the book of Exodus a spiritual battle raging that is manifesting in the physical. You say, how's that? Well, if the Israelites aren't delivered, if God doesn't deliver them and make them into a nation, then his covenant with Abraham is unfulfilled and nobody can trust God's promises. But God did remember and God is keeping his promises to Israel as he keeps all of his promises to all of his people, including us, his followers, his children. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, then God gives Moses his marching orders while Moses struggles with the burden of the task. Look now at Exodus 3 verses 7 and 8 as we continue. Remember, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, right? Then in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3, we read, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then God says to Moses in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. After a few choice words from the Lord, Moses is brought into an experience that most of us, if not all of us, are very familiar with. Those words of God bring into Moses' life a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of Moses for just a moment, okay? Put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're 80 years old. The first 40 years of your life, you're living with a double identity, right? The next 40 years of your life, you're living in obscurity. Now in a moment, God appears. Hallelujah! And then he gives you a daunting task. It doesn't take much to imagine what's happening in Moses' mind. Okay, God, now go to Pharaoh and you probably won't be too enamored by my request to let my people go. And then go to my people and tell them I'm the deliverer who's going to lead them out of Egypt. Oh, and by the way, God, do I need to remind you what happened 40 years ago? In verse 11, Moses utters these words that shouldn't surprise us. And I don't know about you, but I have personally said these words to God. I have to be honest. Moses says to God, after God gives him this daunting task, he says three words. He says, who am I? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? You know, if you're Moses, you've had 40 years in Midian, in exile, to play what I call the what-if game. What if I didn't kill the Egyptian? What if I could have convinced my Israelite people that I was actually on their side? And we can see Moses might have been experiencing a bondage many of us are familiar with. The bondage of living with past regrets and what ifs. You know, bondage comes in many forms. It can be spiritual, it can be physical, it can be mental, it can be emotional. Sometimes the past can really bind us and debilitate us as we seek to engage a God-given task to follow Jesus and give God glory. As Christians, we can relate to the burden of tasks that we feel are bigger than our capacities. You ever get a task from the Lord or be tasked with something you thought was just too big? Well, I got saved in December of 1987. A few years later, I moved to East Tennessee and uh, was going attending Grace Fellowship Church, my home church, and uh, our pastor Tom came up to me one day and said, Larry, would you, would you share your testimony in front of the entire church? I was like, uh, say what? I was, uh, needless to say, scared and fearful. I'd never shared my testimony in public before. And my first thoughts in my mind was, you want me to do what? Who am I? And actually, you might find this hard to believe, but I took a speech class uh, in college and was petrified during that speech class and now I had to go give my testimony in front of the entire church but obviously I survived and all these decades later I'm up here and you know and I'm doing okay I'm, I'm not freaking out yet 
you say, oh, but you're hiding it really well, aren't you? No. God gave me the grace to do that, and obviously he's given me the grace to do many other things, things more challenging in my life, um, like telling my family about my faith in Jesus, which really was a much tougher task in many ways. I'm the first believer in my family. But I ask you today, what tall order are you facing? Because each of us is facing a challenge or challenges in our lives. And the tall order that Moses faces is to go and convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go and then go and convince his own people that he's the guy, that he's God's man for God's time to accomplish God's purposes. So you can imagine the internal tension and the pressure that he is feeling. But notice God's promise to Moses in Exodus 3.12, which is God's promise really to you and I in our faith journey today, whatever it is that we're facing. God says these words that we need to take to heart. God says, I will be with you. So simple and yet so profound and powerful. Not only is God with us, he indwells us through the person of the Spirit. Initially, that promise does not comfort and empower Moses. He'll try to shirk his responsibility. He'll tell God, God, I, I, I can't talk. And he'll question whether Israel will actually follow him. Moses will also wonder how in the world he's going to stand before Pharaoh. He doesn't know Moses and obviously isn't going to be too thrilled with, Mo with Moses telling Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. But the Lord's going to be with Moses, giving him powers, helping him perform signs and wonders in Pharaoh's presence and in the presence of the Israelites. God even gives Moses a helper named Aaron who's going to be Moses' mouthpiece. No matter what Moses' objections are, guess what? <clears throat> God, pardon the pun, but he trumps Moses' objections, right? <clears throat> Every time Moses says, I can't, God says, got that. God, I can't, I got that. God, it's too hard. God says, got that. I'll be with you. And as you follow Moses through a, a deeper study of the book of Exodus, <clears throat> excuse me, you can see him grow into his role as the leader of Israel as he walks by faith, trusts in the Lord, and in his promises, and in his power, and in his provision. That's why you and I are called to walk by what? By faith. We're on a faith journey. Sometimes we can't see. Sometimes God doesn't want us to see. And we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And I don't know what kind of past regrets you're living with. I don't know what kind of what-if reality you may be experiencing t today, if any. But, you know, we can be controlled by our insecurities. We can be controlled by our past. And if we're not careful, if we think that the, the past necessarily equals the future when it comes to what-ifs and past regrets, those things can debilitate us. Those things can sometimes dominate our inner thought life. And sometimes those things can actually enslave us. Yet the Lord says to Moses, as he says to you and I today, I will certainly be with you. It's a promise God gave Moses. It's a promise God gave the disciples. And it's a promise that you and I can hold you today in our time of need. And when we appropriate by faith God's promises and God's power, he can break those chains that bind us. And we, each of us, can experience victory today because if the Son has set you free, brothers and sisters, 
you are free indeed. Amen? Now in Exodus chapters 5 through 10, we see war declared. And remember I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a physical manifestation of a spiritual war going on. And I think as we study this passage a little bit more, we understand that. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go or else bad things, man, bad things in our modern vernacular, right? But Pharaoh, in his hard heart, what does he do repeatedly? He says, no, no, I won't. And what then happens? Bad things. God sends plague after plague after plague. Water turned to blood. Frogs come. Lice or gnats appear. Flies are sent, livestock are killed. Then we see boils, hail, locusts, and darkness descend upon the land. It's not a pretty picture, and you might ask Larry, why the plagues? Why the plagues? Well, for one, the plagues were designed to declare God's authority to the opponents of God, namely the Egyptians, and be a witness to the people of God, the Israelites. In addition, you see, God was judging Pharaoh and accomplishing his victory over the false gods of Egypt. You see, Egypt in that day was very polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many gods. Pharaoh himself was, as the king of Egypt, considered a god to be worshipped. Now God was revealing himself through signs and wonders so that all the people would know that he is the Lord, the one true God. In similar fashion, the sign of wonder of Jesus Christ rising from the dead literally and physically on the third day is a declaration of his complete authority over sin and death so that all people could know that he is the Lord. Now we've mentioned the first nine plagues. During this time, Pharaoh rejects God's word and rejects Moses and his pleas repeatedly again and again and again. Pharaoh belittles the miracles And the result is suffering and tragedy. Then you read about Pharaoh bargaining with Moses in chapter 8, resisting and deceiving Moses in chapter 9, and finally actually threatening to kill Moses in chapter 10, as if that would stop God from doing what God was going to do, right? But never one time allowing the Israelites to go. Now we come to the culmination of the Passover in chapters 11 and 12, where we stop and examine the tenth and final plague. Look now at Exodus 11, verse 1. And then we're going to skip to verses 4 and 5, but we're starting in Exodus 11 now. So turn there, we're going to continue. Exodus 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that he will let you go from here. Moses then announces the plague to Pharaoh in verses 4 and 5. Look at the word of God in verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. Then God says nothing is going to happen to the Israelites, noting that he would, in verse 7, make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. That mark of distinction in Exodus chapter 12 would be found in none other than the Passover. Passover is all about redemption. Earlier in Exodus 6, God said he would redeem the Israelites with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
That word redeem speaks of the purchase price or ransom to, to deliver somebody out of slavery. The means of Israel's redemption? Well, it was found in the blood of the Passover lamb, which I've taught on before here. My ancestors were instructed to take a spotless lamb to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones and to apply its blood to the doorposts of our homes, to the top of the doorpost, the lentil, and to the two side posts. Because of the Israelites' obedience to God's command and because of their faith in the effectiveness of his provision, they were spared the ravages of the tenth plague that befall the land of Egypt. For when the Lord saw the blood on the doors, he forced death to do what? Passover. That's where we get the name Passover. In Hebrew, Pesach. Pesach. The holiday which commemorates the time when death passed over the houses of Israel because of the blood. The blood of the Lamb. What a mighty act of redemption. But friends, what a picture of an even greater redemption accomplished through the sacrifice of another Passover Lamb. The Lamb of God, our Messiah and Lord Jesus. You know, in some ways, all the feasts of Israel, including the Passover, were signposts to the ancient nation. This way to Messiah. This way to Messiah. And we see a picture of Jesus and his saving work here in the Passover, but we'll also see him, if we study all the feasts of Israel, a picture of Christ and his redemptive work on our behalf there. You know, it's been said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that pithy catchphrase. Everybody, perhaps Pastor Chris, you've used it here and there and in the pulpit. But it's a pithy catchphrase that packs a punch, doesn't it? In other words, we're going to better understand the Old Testament when we understand the New and vice versa. This is the whole counsel of God. And we see it right here in the Exodus story. Remember, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 is unblemished. Jesus was unblemished. He was sinless, right? He was the sinless lamb of God. And just as none of the bones of those first Passover lambs were broken, guess what? So none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death. What we're doing here is we're connecting the dots. And remember John the Baptist in John chapter 1, he sees Yeshua Jesus and he says what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul added, For indeed Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And in Revelation 5, verse 9, we see the worship of the Lord taking place in heaven with these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood... You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I hope you're encouraged, but I want you to know, before I became a believer in Jesus Christ 30 years ago, I had not a clue of what I'm talking about today. Not one clue. <laughs> you see, growing up as a boy in the synagogue, I had Passover, yes. Jesus, no. We never uttered his name ever in the synagogue. Okay, And I have to be honest, going to the Passover Seder uh, when I was a youth, I have to be honest and say that I endured rather than enjoyed the experience. Why? I just didn't understand. I didn't connect the dots. 
But then after I got saved in December of 1987 and started reading the New Testament and connecting the dots, I had a revelation. The revelation was this. Believing in Jesus is Jewish. Duh. (laughs) Why didn't anybody tell me this stuff before? (laughs) The lights went on, started connecting the dots, and here I am at Faith Bible Fellowship in Oak Ridge, Tennessee at a Christian church on a Sunday morning decades later. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Today it's a thrill to know Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose sacrifice has paid my sin debt in full. And I am eternally grateful for all that the Lord Jesus has done for me in my life. But back to the text in Exodus. After Pharaoh does let the Israelites go, he has a second go at enslaving them, right? He sends his army to chase Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 14. In that climactic chapter, Moses parts the Red Sea and the Israelites are finally delivered as Pharaoh and his army are defeated. Now look in verse 31 of Exodus chapter 14. Back to the text. Now as you're turning there, I had a friend of mine who's actually preaching at another church in Johnson City. I I said, hey, what are you preaching on? He said this. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, Exodus uh, 1 through 14. He said, how are you going to do that in 30 minutes? (laughs) I I texted back, magic (laughs) he said god bless you harry potter but anyway exodus 14 31 the word says this israel saw the great power that the lord used against the egyptians so the people feared the lord and they believed in the lord and in his servant moses You know, this verse speaks of the genuine faith of the people of Israel at the end of their experience of God's saving work and the beginning of their journey of faith. You see, they were delivered out of bondage by God's grace through their faith in God's provision. They were transformed spiritually as much as they were delivered physically by the Lord, the bondage breaker. And so what we see in Exodus is one chapter begins, deliverance, and another chapter Another chapter ends, deliverance, out of slavery, and a new chapter in the life of Israel begins. God establishes a relationship with them, okay? And we can see that as Christians, can't we? And God delivers us out of the slavery of bondage to sin, brings us into a personal relationship with him. From this event, I want to I close our time with three principles I want us to take away from our study. First of all, Breaking the bondage of sin is impossible for us. Breaking the bondage of sin is impossible for us. Just as the Israelites had no resource within themselves to break free from the physical yoke of Pharaoh, we have no spiritual resource within us to break free from the bondage of sin. Because of the curse we all inherited from Adam's sin, we are born enslaved to sin. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So our nature is corrupt and that's why we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So the best of our human efforts, religiosity, morality, good deeds, is never going to change that corrupt nature. We simply need a new nature. And that nature doesn't come from us. It comes from God. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3 that we must be born again, born of the Spirit, and that occurs when a person trusts in Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul put it very well in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that brings us to our second principle. It's this. God's saving grace frees us from the bondage of sin. God's saving grace frees us from the bondage of sin. You know, we've seen this morning that in Passover, we've got a fantastic object lesson pointing to the future redemptive work of Messiah Jesus. And just as my ancestors had to apply in faith the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of their homes in order to be delivered from physical death, so each of us must apply in faith. And we, we sang about it earlier, right? Nothing but the blood. We as believers, we as human beings, have to apply in faith the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts in order to be delivered out of spiritual slavery. But praise God that he chose to bestow his saving grace upon us, his unmerited favor. He bestowed it upon Israel in the Exodus account, and he chooses to bestow that saving grace upon anybody who will call on the name of Jesus and believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Spiritually speaking, I ask you all today, are you living in a spiritual Egypt? Are you living in bondage to the master of sin? You know, if you're here today and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I encourage you. Jesus can deliver you. Jesus can save you from the penalty of your sin. Jesus can give you new life, abundant life. He can give you eternal life. Acknowledge God to God that you're a sinner, that you can't do anything about your sin, but you put your trust in Jesus and believe what he has done for you. And God, the deliverer, will set you free today and put you on a new path. If you've got questions, come talk with Pastor Chris, talk with me, one of the leaders after our church service, okay? But perhaps you're here today and you know the Lord, but you are struggling in an area of your life. Remember, same power that delivered you initially from the penalty of sin is the same power that can deliver you today from the power of sin that is ensnaring you and compromising your relationship with the Lord. Cry out to Jesus because it was for freedom that Christ has set us free because the Lord wants us to walk in the manner in which we've been called victory. Finally, I want us to close with the third principle to consider. Israel's intimacy with God will be determined by their remembering the Lord and his deliverance. Israel's intimacy with God will be determined by their remembering the Lord and his deliverance. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, the word says, God says to Israel, This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. That memorial God is referring to is the Passover feast, okay? Passover was a memorial to celebrate. God commanded the Israelites to remember and what? Rejoice. The implication is that when they remembered the Lord, they would rejoice. But when they forgot the Lord, guess what? 
rejoicing would seep out of their lives and trouble would come. Unnecessary trouble, okay? Incredibly, as Israel quickly forgets the Lord's mighty work of deliverance. Because you see, as you read on in the text, as soon as they were delivered, as soon as they got to the other side of the Red Sea, they began to kvetch, which is Jewish for complain. They began to complain, okay? They became experts at complaining at times, unfortunately. And unfortunately, some of us have taken that cue from time to time, haven't we? (laughs) The Bible tells us that actually an entire generation of Israelites had to perish in the wilderness before they entered the promised land because what? Because of unbelief, because they forgot the Lord. You see, remembering and rejoicing go hand in hand. When Israel remembered the Lord, they rejoiced. When they forgot the Lord, they suffered, and they suffered unnecessarily. In fact, they lost their way to the degree that they fell into idolatry, worshiping not the God of gods, but worshiping other gods. And they ultimately suffered the wages of their waywardness. Now, each of us from time to time may be prone and tempted to forget the Lord, right? But even as God gave Israel the command to remember and rejoice, it's good for us to daily reflect on how we might memorialize events in our lives and take moments to remember and rejoice in the very goodness of God bestowed upon us, not only in the past, but today, and to trust in God's goodness in our tomorrows. Amen? Today and every day, may we remember our bondage-breaking God who has redeemed us with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the very blood of Christ. And may we also rejoice that through his wonder-working power, our chains have been loosed. We are now free. We are free to know God. We are free to love God. And we are free to serve God. Praise the Lord for our Redeemer Jesus, the ultimate bondage breaker, the one who has set us free. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Moses, a real person who had real struggles in his life. And yet you met him at his point of need. You met the Israelites out of in their point of need. Lord, when they were helpless and hopeless, they had no one else to cast their care upon except you. And Lord, today we cast our cares upon you because you care for us, your children. Lord, you are a good, good father. We acknowledge you today. We love you today. We trust you today. We cast our cares upon you today. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.